The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The thing that I think Apple might be thinking is that this is going to get the government off their backs. Look, we gave you what you want. Now, like, this is the thing that you keep hammering on us about. Now we've done it. Go away. It's not. Now it's going to be, they're all going to be wanting one. And it's not, as I said, going to be limited to CSAM. So I don't think Apple has succeeded in deflecting attention away, even though there is also now attention being paid to the Facebooks and the Googles and the signals of the world, uh, it's going to be paid on, on Apple too. And the demand is going to be to do more and more and more. You can't give an inch without a mile being snatched away. I'm Alan Rosenstein, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 13th, 2021. Two of the biggest controversies in tech are how to stop the spread of child pornography and other exploitation material, and whether encryption prevents legitimate law enforcement investigations, and if so, what to do about it. In an announcement last week, Apple dropped a bomb into both of these debates. Apple announced that future versions of its iPhone operating system would scan photos its users posted to the cloud and automatically detect if those photos contain child exploitation material. And if so, Apple would notify the government. While many in law enforcement and in organizations devoted to child safety have hailed Apple's announcement, It has proven hugely controversial among many technologists, security researchers, and digital civil society advocates. They worry that Apple's system will harm privacy and civil rights, especially if governments demand that it be used to scan for content other than child exploitation. To help make sense of this all, I was joined by Mayank Varia, a cryptographer at Boston University, and Rihanna Pfefferkorn, a research scholar at the Stanford Internet Observatory. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 13th. Mayank Varia and Rihanna Pfefferkorn on Apple's decision to scan for child exploitation material. So Mayank, will you start us off with a description of what exactly it is that Apple announced and at a high level, how this scanning works and what its limits are? Yeah, so I'll, uh, I'll start by discussing it at sort of a, from, from just a, you know, technological standpoint, you know, what are the computer science and cryptographic systems that they they put together? And I'm sure we'll have more time to talk about the law and policy implications of that later. So I'll stick to the technology for now. The white paper that uh, Apple put on their website last week about uh, child safety has, it's kind of a complicated system that has a bunch of moving pieces. The way I think of it is there's there's four very discrete parts, and then they all they all fit together at the end. So the problem at, at its core from a, from a computer science standpoint is, you know, Apple or NCMEC has a set of images 
your phone has a bunch of images, your phone or laptop or whatever, has a bunch of images that you're going to upload to the cloud. And Apple would like to know if many of them, many of the images are in the intersection of the NCMEC set. I just interrupt, just for those of our re- of our listeners who may not be aware, NCMEC is the National Center for Miss- Missing and Exploited Children. It's this kind of quasi-public-private organization that that has a big database of child exploitation materials and is responsible for you know collecting that information from platforms, you know, as they detect child exploitation materials, and then forwarding that onto to law enforcement. So that that's just for everyone to be on the same page. That's what uh, NCMEC is. Yes. Thanks. So basically, once there are these images, there's sort of four moving pieces. The first one is something called perceptual hashing, which is a fancy term for saying, uh, trying to extract a feature of the image that does not change too much, you know, if the image is just like brightened or cropped, or you make some minor, you know, Photoshop edit to it. Uh, Conceptually, it's very simple. Actually, building this is probably one of the hardest pieces of of what Apple is proposing to do. And at the moment, it's a giant black box because they haven't released any details about how this part works. Um, So I'm sure we'll come back to that later. Uh, But basically, you take these images and you you sort of build a canonical version of the image that uh, is invariant to these kinds of Photoshop transformations. The second piece is something called private set intersection cardinality. That's a fancy word of saying, uh, how many things do we have in common? So so, uh, how many of those images from the Apple slash NCMEC data set and from your uh, set of stuff that you're uploading to iCloud are, are in common? Apple will learn how many of these pieces, uh, how many photos are in common in in the intersection of these two sets. The third piece is something called threshold encryption or threshold decryption. And what that means is if a lot of them are in common, if some greater than some threshold uh, number of images are in common, then Apple actually uh, has a way of recovering the secret key material in order to decrypt those images, to read the images that are in the intersection. Uh, but not the other images on your device. Uh, And the fourth piece is just like an obfuscation piece that basically says if the number of images you have is relatively small, they want to try to obscure the number of how many, uh, if it's less than that threshold, if it's not enough for Apple to read uh, your images, then they want to obscure how many elements overlap. So each of these four pieces sort of fits together in their white paper. Most of the cryptographic stuff in the white paper is not really that new. It's uh, cryptography that has been studied for a very long time. The new parts are the beginning piece, that perceptual hashing is, like I said before, it's brand new and it's a total black box. We don't know how it works. There are some novelties in the final piece about how to how to do this obfuscation piece at the end. But the real novelty, I think, is the fact that Apple put this these pieces together both from a technological point of view, there's there's a bunch of engineering, plumbing, and glue to make the pieces fit together, but really mostly from a policy perspective that there's a company willing to put these pieces together. So a couple of follow-up questions before I, I turn to, to Rihanna and ask you know, why Apple decided to do this. So the first question is, so you you mentioned just now that the perceptual hashing algorithm is a, a quote-unquote black box. We don't know how it operates. And I'm curious, is do we expect that to change? Do we expect Apple to release either partial or perhaps the full information about how this algorithm works? And the reason I ask that is because my understanding is that the best practices when it comes to computer security and cryptography is that, you know, all your ciphers, all your your kind of 
uh, cryptographic primitives, you always want those to be public so that the maximum number of people can look at them, stress test them, find flaws. And you have to design them in such a way such that they can be public, but still achieve the you know, cryptographic goal, right? You don't want to you know, roll, roll your own crypto as it were. I mean, is this what Apple is doing? Are they coming up with this perceptual hashing algorithm? And then they're just going to have to say, you know, trust us, this thing works, or do we expect this to be, if not open source, then just to be made public in some way? Yeah, good question. I'll address it from a few standpoints. Um, first, I, I don't personally know whether Apple plans to make this open source at any time, either sooner or eventually. Perhaps uh, you two might know. They have at least designed it from a threat model within Apple that, that it's a hash function that they're willing to make the code be something that resides client side as compared to prior related systems such as Microsoft's photo DNA, which is broadly speaking trying to solve a similar problem, but uh, Microsoft restricts the dissemination of that software so that it's only run on certain certain devices and, and not put on client-facing machines. So, so whether Apple plans to open source it or not, I don't know, but they're definitely taking into account the possibility of it being reverse engineered. But that leads into your final point, which is because this is a component of the system that crucially impacts the security of everything downchain from it. You know, if if the hash system is broken and images that are either far apart uh, look the same to this uh, to this perceptual hashing feature, or images that are actually similar look very different, then everything I mentioned downstream of it sort of doesn't operate in the way that you would expect anymore. Uh, so it is actually incredibly security crucial to everything downstream that that this piece works, which is why it's so important and why you know pretty much everybody in the in the scientific uh, and 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 civil liberties communities are pushing for for this hash function to be made public among many other requests. But my other question, just just about how this system works, is you know, from my reading of of Apple's materials and the commentary around it, it sounds like this scanning will only work if the user um, has enabled iCloud sync. So iCloud is Apple's cloud service. You know, when you buy an iPhone, you can enable this feature and therefore have all your photos that you take on your iPhone uploaded to the cloud so you can access them later. And it sounds like Apple has designed the system such that only if there is iCloud syncing that the scanning will, will occur. So why does this limitation exist? And doesn't it make it very easy then to circumvent the scanning? If you just don't want it scanned, you can turn off iCloud, but that sort of seems to defeat the purpose of being really serious about finding CSAM. So to your question of why it exists, I guess um, ultimately that might be a question for Apple more than any of us on the call, but in further intent from what they've built, the way they seem to be going about things is saying, you know, what you do on your device is, is your choice, but what you do on our servers is something that we want to scan. And so they want to be able to have the technological ability to scan all items uploaded to the Apple servers for the presence of CSAM. There are different ways that that could have been accomplished. And many other tech companies, broadly speaking, also do CSAM scanning, though in a very different way than what Apple is currently proposing. But I think that's sort of the demarcation that they're setting out uh, in terms of could this be trivially evaded? Yes, uh, it could it could be trivially evaded by just turning off iCloud photos or using just local storage or just uh, uh, other service providers potentially. But I'll stress that the, that's an answer based on how the system works right now. 
And uh, I suspect one thing we'll get into in this conversation is what doors this opens for how things might change in the future. In other words, it is conceivable that Apple could at some point change the system and have it apply to all iPhones and all photos taken, whether or not the user decides to upload it to iCloud, which is to say that none of the technology that Apple has developed or put together you know, kind of inherently relies on iCloud syncing. Is that is that a fair statement? That's right. From a pure technological point of view, uh, it would not be a very far lift to scan for all photos on your phone or laptop. So Rihanna, let me let me turn to you now and let me ask, you know, what do you think explains Apple's decision to to start this sort of scanning? And and why are they doing it now? You know, I'm struck personally, um, and this is something I've written a lot about in my own research. Apple, of all the kind of tech, the big major tech companies, they've tended to be the most resistant to any sort of compromise or you know, undermining, however you want to characterize it, of um, strong or end-to-end encryption. So, you know, most famously in, in 2016, they fought this incredibly high-profile battle with the FBI, which, you know, in some respects they won, in which they pushed back against the FBI's request uh, that Apple write some custom code to, to help the FBI unlock uh, one of the uh, uh, iPhones of one of the San Bernardino terrorist shooters. And in that situation, Apple took a, a very extreme or principled, again, however you want to characterize it, uh, a stance saying that sort of under no circumstances should they be in the business of, of weakening encryption and allowing governments to circumvent it. Now, child exploitation is obviously a huge problem, but violent terrorism is also a really big problem. So, so what do you think accounts for this change in Apple's position? Well, so I think that they have looming over them the as as do you know every other company that provides some form of either device encryption or communications encryption uh, for their users the looming threat that unless they throw the U.S. government a bone of some kind that the U.S. government might just choose to outlaw strong encryption entirely and we saw this threat get made by several senators during a hearing in December of 2019 at which. Uh, Eric Neuenschwander from Apple, who has been very uh, deeply involved in talking about and promoting these new features, uh, was yelled at by multiple senators and told, you know, you have to come up with some way of fixing this child safety problem and fixing your encryption block of of, of those issues. And you have to do better. Otherwise, we're going to do it for you. And so, you know, I think that also may help answer the why now question is, you know, if we assume that Eric flew home to Cupertino the next day from DC and said, uh, I think they're serious, you guys, then that might have been the time when they may have started to work on this system and it may have taken until now to get it ready for prime time and to, and to be ready to, to announce it publicly. I don't think that was an idle threat on behalf of those senators because a few months uh, thereafter, we saw in rapid succession, first the introduction of the Earn It Act, which I've described as kind of a a backdoor way of accomplishing a backdoor in that it would have had potentially the impact of effectively getting rid of end-to-end encryption without actually overtly banning it. And then shortly after the Earn It bill was introduced, we saw the introduction of the Lawful Access to Encrypted Data Act bill by uh, the same senator, Senator Graham, which would have simply basically been the end of strong encryption for devices and uh, for communications in the United States and also web encryption, even though that never actually seems to be a problem for investigators, uh, because it would have amended both the you know the FISA side of uh, American law and the uh, criminal uh, ECPA side of American law and you know warrant law to mandate and specify that technical assistance can be demanded from 
providers such as Apple or Facebook or whoever in the form of providing a decryption uh, of the data that they, that they hold that the government is interested in. So I think that potential threat that we might just see a legal ban on basically all of Apple's business model for how they designed the iPhone and for how they have designed iMessage, that might have been looming in, in the background there as Eminence agrees that led to this decision being made. So Rihanna, let me, let me continue with you. I mean, you are obviously, you know, in your position at Stanford and, and sort of generally you are deeply enmeshed within the digital civil society organizations and, and community. And so what what has the reaction, I mean, it's only been a few days, but what has the reaction been been so far? Uh, and, and of course, you know, there there's not one digital civil society, right? There are different groups and they have different concerns and some are more concerned about privacy. Others maybe are more concerned about issues of child sexual exploitation or other harassment online. Um, so, you know, across these different groups, what's been the initial response? It's been dismay and shock, honestly. And part of that is because it's very clear that nobody was consulted by Apple at any point during this process. We can assume that they were working closely with NCMEC on this uh, because obviously they will depend upon getting that hash database from NCMEC. Um, and presumably maybe also uh, certain elements of, of law enforcement or other child safety organizations as well. But they never bothered talking to human rights organizations, even though you know there are organizations like the Human Rights Watch that have folks who think specifically about children's human rights and how in- encryption uh, and the encryption battle interacts with those. It's clear they didn't talk to even moderate or centrist, uh, you know, civil liberties type organizations, much less what the executive director of strategic partnerships at NCMEC unfortunately called the screeching minority um, in a, a letter to Apple that got leaked subsequently, and for which NCMEC has subsequently apologized in private. Nobody was, was consulted. And it's not just a, a vanity on our part that we didn't get brought in. It's also that, you know, it's actually pretty standard procedure when companies are designing uh, some feature that they recognize has some privacy or speech or other impact. It's not unheard of. And in fact, it's pretty common practice to go around and sort of show them a demo and talk to them about it and get feedback. I've done that in the past while I've been at Stanford. And that way you can at least say, you know, we developed this in consultation with civil society stakeholders from across the spectrum. And it's really a glaring omission that none of that is here. As far as I can tell, this just got dropped as a fait accompli in everybody's laps without hearing any of the the input that we are now out there talking about, which is here are the ways that this may put queer and trans and questioning kids uh, in danger on the messaging side of uh, of their announcement. And here are the international human rights and here are the domestic civil liberties and all of those related issues that are raised by the CSAM scanning to iCloud side of the announcement. So there's just been a a lot of uproar. There's also honestly been a lot of, of confusion because this is so surprising for a company that prides itself on really highly polished PR and, you know, really, you know, art of the spectacle, you know, circus-like uh, presentations whenever they introduce a new uh, iDevice that Apple really misstepped here in terms of uh, introducing this, you know, these new features uh, to the general public. And it's very easy to conflate different parts of these two sides of the announcement. There's also a third side that nobody talks about because it's actually uncontroversial involving uh, a Syrian search. There's just been a lot of confusion about, wait, which ages 
for the messaging thing? What happens for which ages? Okay, and then wait, like what kind of you know hashing are you using on this side versus on this side of the announcement? And so they've also just not done a good job of explaining it. And so honestly, I'm, I'm glad that we have Mayank on here to just say like clearly in, in, in words that even I can understand what is actually going on in terms of what Apple is doing, because there's just been a lot of confusion as well. And so it's clear that they've spent the last week in you know, damage control and sort of panicking and trying to explain more and have more meetings with members of civil society and of the press uh, and issue more Q&As uh, every day to try and explain better something that just you know, was a really botched rollout for this. So let, let me grant you that Apple could have done a better job with the PR on this. I guess my question for you is, what would have substantively changed if Apple had gone and done a roadshow, let's say, and and consulted you and consulted other civil society groups? And and let's let's stick to the the CSAM scanning issue um, because I I think that's kind of the 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 most controversial piece and and is is pretty separable from from the other parts of of what Apple has recently announced. You know, if civil society was always going to say, look, you shouldn't do this because whatever your intentions and however serious CSAM is as a, as a problem, and no one disputes that, any attempt to weaken encryption or to you know, create uh, a quote-unquote backdoor that will accomplish the same thing, you know, that's, just a, that's just a non-starter for us. So I guess my question is, you know, are you upset that, that you know, Apple didn't kind of do the, the PR and the work to just signal this and give people time to prepare? Or, or do you think that you know, this would have materially been different or could have been materially different if they had actually consulted civil society. Because from their perspective, I can imagine them saying, look, we're going to get roasted on this either way, right? People are, like, the people who don't like this are not going to like this, and there's nothing we can do about that. And so, you know, why bother letting them know a few weeks in advance and letting them, you know, get out in front of the, of, of the thing we're going to do anyway and try to, dis, try to discredit it? So I think that's a very nihilistic view, and it also misunderstands, well, not completely misunderstands, but is not necessarily reflective of the stage at which these kinds of features might get uh, demoed for outside uh, input. Uh, if you are just rolling it out as we already built this thing and you are the very last step where we tell you about it before we make a public announcement, then that's not really meaningfully different than doing it at the same time as the general public announcement. Ideally, you would want to have outside groups providing some sort of input early enough in the process that it could actually make a meaningful difference to the outcome. Now, it's entirely possible, and it's certainly been the case in the past, that you can do civil society consultations and then just ignore everything that they say and then you know, still go forth and say, look, we asked you know, stakeholders and uh, you know, this is what we came up with. We didn't actually follow their recommendations, but you know, we, we went around and talked to them and listened. I think that there are potentially some different choices that could have been made if they had talked to people from different parts of this issue. Here's where I think it's important that you recognize that civil society is not all one uniform thing, because it may be easy to say, well, we shouldn't ask the people that we know are never going to like anything we ever do, and they're just going to reflexively knee-jerk and scream about it. And therefore, you know, let's just paint everybody in civil society the same. They're not. There was a, a, an opinion piece that came out yesterday in the New York Times by Matt Green and my boss, Alex Stamos, who have very different you know, points of view on this issue, but nevertheless agreed enough to publish an op-ed jointly in the newspaper of record saying how bad this is for, for privacy and 
proposing alternatives that could have been done instead. It, you know, one of the things that Alex says is why couldn't you have simply decided to have this feature be turned on only for shared photo albums in iCloud? If your worry is about people who are sharing collections of CSAM with each other, why not limit it to that? Because one of the, the sort of potential uh, reasons why Apple is doing this, we talked about the policy reason earlier, but one technical reason why this might be happening, and I've heard some doubt cast on this theory, is that it may be that Apple is going to move to end-to-end -end encrypt iCloud, which is something they have backed off from doing uh, in the past. But if they were going to do it, that might be why you'd want to do all of this complicated uh, you know, on-device uh, scanning and PSI stuff. But you know, you could say, what if we only like left end-to-end -end encryption off for shared photo albums and then kept the rest of it, you know, end-to-end -end encrypted? And Apple has refused to comment on future plans. Like I got to ask them point blank, like, are you going to end-to-end -end encrypt iCloud? Is that why you're doing this? And they said, we don't talk about future product choices. But my thinking is, if they had gone around and talked to some of the, the voices from across the spectrum, especially folks uh, like Alex who are interested in pragmatic solutions and who understand intimately uh, the stakes on both sides of this issue with regard to the child safety portion and with regard to the privacy and the security portion and, and see you know, where people are coming from on both, then you know, I like to think that maybe this is not the, the outcome that we would have reached, that it might have been uh, something that looks a little more modest. You know, as, as lawyers, we talk about uh, you know, what is the most narrowly tailored solution for a particular issue. And I think there's concern that this is not the most narrowly tailored way of going about uh, accomplishing the goals that they were trying to do. I recognize that they could have done something much broader and that this is their version of narrow tailoring, but you know, I'm going to bring in the other side of this, but my position is kind of similar here is, could you not have just done this for uh, shared photo albums for the CSAM scanning side? And then why aren't you building in a better abuse reporting tool into iMessage on the iMessage side? They're still not doing that. They have this parental notification thing that they're doing, but they're not, you know, they're still stopping up their ears against wanting to actually get reports to Apple about what is going on in iMessage. Just to add on top of Rihanna's excellent points about uh, Apple not meaningfully talking with folks, I don't know that they've ever actually meaningfully listened to folks either, which is an even easier bar, right? Like Rihanna and, and her colleagues at the Stanford Internet Observatory have run all sorts of great workshops on all aspects of balancing privacy and security interests in the digital world. And to my knowledge, and Rihanna could tell me if I'm wrong, I don't believe they've ever been Apple representatives even in the room listening to other folks there. That's right. And, you know, this is something that, that Alex has, has griped about. We've had so many folks from all different parts of society. You know, the, the first one of these workshops that we did, which was about child safety in an end-to-end encrypted world, we had people from NICMIC, from THORN, which is a prominent um, child safety tooling organization. We had the FBI. We had people from the ACLU. We had the Electronic Frontier Foundation. We had all of these different people that I think it might otherwise be pretty difficult to get to come into a room and talk civilly to each other and listen to each other. And Apple wasn't there. Now, it's fine that they didn't come to my little party or any of the other little parties that we threw in person and then virtually uh, in the intervening time since then. But at least, you know, to I think it was incumbent upon them to try and talk to people individually, even if they didn't want to come and, and be in the same room as us. 
And so, yeah, that also grates a little bit is that there has been great work that is extremely pertinent to this that has been coming out all along, both on the social and the policy side, but also on the technical side. You know, Jonathan Mayer has a paper out at Usenix this week that is extremely relevant, extremely similar to what Apple's proposing. Um, and that's been in the works for a while. He put out an earlier version of that around the same time as we started holding these workshops in late 2019. And an important component of that paper that's at Usenix this week is saying, here's a design that you could implement. Here are the really serious reasons why you should consider not doing this because of the civil liberties and human rights impact and because of the potential for government abuse, which is something I'm sure we'll get into shortly. Rihanna, I just want to emphasize that I would always come to a party that you threw if you invited me. So just keep that in mind for the future. I would, I would never pull an apple on you. You know what they say, there ain't no party like a West Coast party because the yeah. West Coast party don't stop. <laughs> that, that, that is what they say. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People By Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. 
And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So we will definitely talk about the, the worries about government abuse. But before we do that, I want to turn back to Mayank. And I want to you know get a sense from you of what the response has been from the technical community. So Rihanna gave us a sense of what at least certain parts of digital civil society think about this. And I'm curious, what do the the technologists, the cryptographers, the the security researchers, what do they think about this this issue? And in particular, I was hoping you could talk about this issue of client side scanning. So the you know one, one thing that I've I've been reading about is that a lot of the controversy around this new system is that um, it doesn't operate on Apple servers. It, it actually operates on the iPhone device itself, and that this is whether it's new, it is at least controversial. So, so why is that? And what else do the, the tech people, um, as it were, uh, think about this new system? Sure. The response from the tech community includes everything that Rihanna just said. I mean, people who go into cybersecurity or cryptography as a career uh, usually have very strong views about digital privacy. So everything that Rihanna said. Picking on the, the specifics of the, the tech response also, there's been a variety of people taking a look at the white paper from just a cryptographic perspective to just verify that, you know, it does what it says it does. And it's, you know, not clear. You know, the, the, what Apple has done is something relatively similar to a conference peer review in that they have a white paper designed by, by you know, a bunch of uh, authors at Apple as well as Dan Binet at Stanford. Uh, but they've also gone out and gotten some external cryptographers to review it. 
which is very nice. But that having been said, I think I would be petrified if any paper that I wrote at a conference immediately, I got a call from a company the next day saying we've built this into our systems. Like the standard of peer review is very different than the standard of this is going to be running live on a billion people's phones. And if we mess up, there are catastrophic consequences to digital privacy. So just as Rihanna said, it would have been nice to have uh, everyone from the from the civil liberties uh, communities involved earlier in the design process. It would have been nicer to have you know a broader discussion in the crypto community. But but beyond that, um, the the bigger concerns for uh, the tech community, I think, center around this you know black box hash function and the fact that it's interspersed into this complicated cryptographic system and the implications of a failure. Uh, of this perceptual hash function on the rest of the system are, are not at all understood and very difficult to understand. Even, even if we had all the code, it would take a long time. Uh, and also, like you said in your question, sort of this uh, shifting of the Overton window, this, this idea that there used to be this idea that, you know, what's run on your local machine, your local phone, your local you know, laptop is sort of code that you approve of. And what servers do is not entirely, you know, whatever they want, like there are reasons to have both actual regulations and, and social pressures and pushback to constrain what companies do with our data and with our, their information. But, uh, but, but to say that, like, at least at a minimum, what's on your device, you have full control of. Now, we're well past the point technologically that you could, like, literally write your own operating system from scratch and actually do anything to interface with anyone else in the world. But at least the idea that, you know, you have this say over how your system is used, how your, you know, the, that, that physical possession of the phone corresponds to logical control over what's going on in the phone is sort of that's 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 been broken here uh, and that's very concerning because it's not at all clear what the implications of breaking that in this one arena will have as downstream effects in many other problem domains yeah so let me, let me follow up on that I, I, I guess i'm i'm i understand conceptually the the difference between what happens on your physical hardware versus what happens on hardware that other people own right in the cloud or, or, or somewhere else. But I, I guess I'm having trouble seeing why an ordinary or even a relatively technologically advanced user should care about that distinction. You know, as you point out, it's been a long time since you could actually have control over what is on your physical device, in particular with respect to, to iPhones, which are quite quite locked down. You can't install anything that Apple hasn't approved of. You know, it's been a while since it was easy uh, to jailbreak your phone. So it doesn't actually seem that we have had control, those of us who have Apple devices, uh, very much on, on what is in our pockets. And at the same time, lots of people, of course, not everyone, but lots and lots of users, including many technically sophisticated users, spend much of their life using cloud services to the extent, you know, to, to the point where for many of us, a phone is just kind of a thin and fairly dumb client to access our online mail, our online chat, our online browsing, our online streaming, our, you know, everything is online. And so are there actual technical and actual security implications, novel security implications of Apple doing this scanning on the user device? Or, or, or does this just make more salient a fact that has been true for many, many years now, which is that the idea that you somehow own that or that when you own a Apple device, you actually have control over it, that that which has not been true for many years now is just more obvious to everyone. So the way I would respond to that is to say that, you know, if if everything 
that Apple says works correctly, that's a big if, if we assume also what Rihanna was saying earlier that you know Apple will move to a world where uh, iCloud is otherwise end-to-end encrypted, there is a real possibility that the privacy of your data would be better than in a world where there's server-side scanning everywhere. But that if is like a big statement that we do not understand at all, and the implications of failure of everything to be working properly, you know, at best leads to a false sense of security, and at worst could open up even new failure modes that we haven't thought of yet because it's only been you know a week uh, since since this has been announced publicly. So that's part of the concern, and that adds on top of the the statements I was saying earlier about. Uh, you know, this this idea of uh, local device control. It's true that, you know, we don't have the ability to just, you know, design our own computers from scratch uh, nowadays. But it's also true that perceptions of the public opinion of tech companies and actions that tech companies take are very correlated with how the companies act in a way that is or is not in your own interest, right? So when companies made the move five-ish, five, six years ago towards pushing for end-to-end encryption, both locally and for cloud storage systems, you know, that's something that is in most consumers' interest as well. So they like companies that do this. Companies that obtain, that, that run websites that have, you know, massive trackers everywhere so that they can do lots of data mining, that might be in the company's interest. It might help them out financially, but it's not in your interest. People's perceptions of of companies and their products is correlated with what they would have wanted the product to be, even if you don't have the ability to go tinker with it yourself. Before we talk about some of the broader issues, I I do want to spend another minute or two talking about these these failure modes, as you described them, Mayank. And and of course, this is still very early on. People are still figuring out, you know, what is the possible parade of horribles here? But what are the concerns from a technical perspective, right? Is it is it that the system will be inaccurate, that will be false positives or false negatives? Is it that this creates a vulnerability that can somehow be hacked? And what does that mean? So, you know, can, can you give us just a, a general sense of, at least right now, what are the main categories of failure that, that people are starting to get worried about, based on what we know about the system? So I can give some answers, but I'll caution that the whole purpose of having an open peer public review and process that Rihanna was talking about earlier is that, you know, none of us can think of all the possible ways, none of us individually can think of all the possible ways something can go wrong. And that's why the security and privacy community is a community that looks at these kinds of challenging problems together. But some of the concerns uh, concretely that have been raised are about, can you fool this uh, perceptual hash function? So can I change an image that maybe actually is CSAM into a way that it evades detection? Uh, and then CSAM peddlers can go on and, and uh, share all this child abuse uh, material. Or conversely, send you innocuous looking things that look like a totally fine you know, image to you, but that the detectors will pick up as uh, abusive material? Can I use this for some kind of way to uh, blackmail or extort you? This is all assuming, I mean, right now, this system is just planning to be rolled out in the United States, where the downstream implications of this technology matching you are that Apple sees something and may or may not report it to NCMEC, who, who may or may not report it to the uh, law enforcement agencies, you know, depending on, on, on their manual reviews. But how this system is used in other countries could be very different. And that the way that different societies choose to use this technology, potentially very different than the way that the U.S. does, uh, will interface with the ways that these uh, technical failure possibilities, it, it might exacerbate how bad they could become. Yeah, so let, let's turn to that. And let me ask you, Rihanna, you know, 
beyond the issue of Apple not consulting civil society, I mean, there are obviously lots of substantive concerns. And I, I assume these concerns are not primarily with the privacy of people who have or want to share CSAM, right? These are not the people who we're concerned about. You know, what what are the the worries, not necessarily the technical worries, but the kind of policy worries that you and, and you know, other folks in civil society have about Apple's new system? I think you're right that there has not been a lot of concern, not no concern, but very little concern expressed for the people who are trading in this unlawful material where there is zero legal context. There's no legitimate context to own it, to trade it, to transmit it, to store it. There is worry about what happens if there are false positives. What about the privacy of people uh, whose photos are mistakenly flagged because of some image perturbations or something that happen um, to to their images that get it, you know, ensnared in, in, in you know some sort of false match against the hash database for enough of the images on their device that it uh, trips the secret threshold that we're talking about. That's one thing, um, and so I know that's also a technical concern: is how likely is that to happen? Apple says it's one in a trillion. We don't know. I don't think what they're basing that on. There's a lot of concern about how readily this can and will be. Uh, exported from the CSAM context to any kind of other uh, content that governments around the world have some reason to dislike. Um, I think you mentioned uh, terrorism earlier. So we don't have a lot of hash databases just packed up and ready to go for a lot of different kinds of content out there. But one of the ones that does exist is the GIFCT database uh, of terrorist and violent extremist content, which uh, unlike the uh, NICMIC database, which is managed by NICMIC, is an industry collaborative effort where there are contributions being made by multiple tech companies of what is supposedly just, you know, content that is so bad that they will take it off of their services if it is found as in violation of their terms of service or applicable local law, such as uh, in Australia. But even there, the, the GIFCT database and the people who run it, the consortium that runs it, uh, have been criticized for how opaque it is. There are very good reasons to understand why nobody should get to peek inside the NICMIC hash database. And we have to sort of take NICMIC's word for it that it has been verified as images of child sexual abuse, relating to child sexual abuse. When it comes to terrorism, because every other context other than CSAM has some sort of legitimate context for it, whether that's news or commentary or uh, you know, counter-propaganda, counter-programming, or human rights abuse documentation that's especially pertinent in the terrorism context, then there are worries that there are going to be databases that governments will hand to Apple and say, you also have to do hash matching on device for these other things. And even for terrorism, where you might be like, well, that seems like a pretty you know, open and shut case, because there are these other valid contexts, and because that has already arisen as a concern just for the GIFCT database, um, you can see it going from there. So the worry is that the next demand is going to be GIFCT, and from there it's going to be uh, copyright, some system similar to like what Content ID does for YouTube uploads, and that from there it's going to be deepfakes and les majeste and you know any context you could think of. There are plenty of countries where it's still illegal to be gay. So you know, are they going to try and look for indicators uh, that somebody's breaking that particular law? These are the concerns that have been raised is that there are inevitably going to be free expression as well as you know, necessarily privacy because you are intruding upon people's communications and upon what people store uh, in their private files, that there are going to be these ramifications and that all we've heard from Apple is that if they were ever asked to do this for anything other than CSAM, they would just say no. And it's really hard to ask 
the owners of the billion iPhones, you know, in deployment in the field today to just rely on that as being good enough. And so, Mike, let me ask you a follow up on that. So, so Rihanna, I think, very correctly points out that you know, if we're in a situation in which the only thing keeping Apple from acceding to demands to search for what we think of as very legitimate or should be protected content, um, if the only thing we have to rely on is Apple's word, that that seems like a real problem. I mean, is there is there any way in which Apple could design actual technical restrictions on its own ability to expand the scope of this system from CSAM, which I think we can all agree is is bad content and would be good to get rid of if we could, uh, to stuff in which there are, you know, either corner cases such as terrorism context or stuff which is just uh, we should be protecting, um, but that, you know, some authoritarian governments don't want to protect. Or, you know, once you've created a system like this, it, you know, the, whether it's CSAM or something else, is just entirely up to Apple and the powers that be to decide. So yes and no. There are aspects of public auditability and accountability that technology could help to enforce, and there's other aspects that are not. If Apple deploys the current system as it's currently written on their website, some things that they could build mechanisms for allowing everyone to audit are, for example, does everybody get matched against the same set of images, right? Like whatever the database is that is claimed to be the NCMEC database, am I getting the same comparison as you are, or is somebody trying to target me? Uh, you could actually build a mechanism to detect that. There's also the ability to say, have potentially, if there's a third party uh, who could serve as an auditor who's authorized to view these images, which is almost nobody in the United States for the reasons Rihanna said, then you could have other people attest to the fact that you're being served the right set of images. But all of those kinds of technological mechanisms would require specific code to be on your client device, your phone or laptop, that would perform that check and that would say, refuse to participate in the protocol if, if, if this uh, accountability check is, is broken. But remember, Apple controls that uh, local device code, right? I mean, they always have. That's not a new property of anything this week, but they control that code. And, you know, they're, they're sort of opening the box of saying, we're willing to tinker with client-side code for these kinds of purposes. And who's to say they don't just turn off, you know, this kind of check and validating something like that they, you know, they didn't tamper with your own client code is, is something that's virtually impossible technologically for, you know, you as a device owner to validate that the operating system manufacturer itself, you know, the company that makes both the hardware and the software isn't doing something uh, nefarious. There's, there's really nothing you can do about it technologically. And as a result, I wish, you know, we would have seen a lot more transparency in their website and their interviews and all about not just, you know, here's a cryptographic idea. In some sense, that was like the easiest part of this very complicated problem and that they should have been doing more upfront, uh, expecting the very, very reasonable questions that people like Rihanna are asking. So let, let's situate this in, in the larger set of conversations that in some sense have been going on since the 90s, but, but really got going, you know, in the last 10 years about access to encrypted data, right? This is the, the quote unquote going dark debate. And it, it, it does seem to me, uh, and I want to get both of your thoughts, but I'll, I'll start with you, Rihanna. It, it does seem to me that one of the most dramatic effects of what Apple has done is that it sort of does seem to have conceded a certain kind of defeat in its position in the going 
dark debate. You know, so a very kind of stylized and caricatured, you know, description of both sides was that the the tech industry and, and Apple in particular, but lots of folks in the tech community would say things like, look, we have end-to-end encryption. It's incredibly hard to have secure systems. It's hard enough to have that. You know, we, we cannot create exceptions to that without really undermining security overall. And so please, governments, stop asking us to do so, right? It's, it's not worth it. You're not going to get a good result. And, and the government, you know, the FBI and other folks would say things like, look, you guys are the smartest people on the planet. You've invented these amazing things. Can you just try a little harder? Please just do a little more research. And maybe you'll discover that there's a way that at least in this or that circumstance, you can provide us with access to certain kinds of content while still having a system that overall is secure enough, right? Now, whatever you think about the security or propriety of Apple's new scanning system, it does seem to me, at least, that Apple has implicitly conceded the thing the FBI has been saying all along, which is that they're really smart. They think they're really smart. And they think that with enough research, they can come up with, at least for certain categories of, of data, certain categories of encrypted information, ways of providing access that they think is still overall privacy protective. And, and so what we, whether or not you know, the government side, quote unquote, has won the going dark debate. Hasn't Apple kind of conceded that they have in this or am I, am I off base? Well, maybe Maya can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's my understanding that this isn't some uh, masterful brand new breakthrough in technology. It's long been known that you could do client side scanning against hashes in a data set and that you could make the number of matches meet a particular chosen threshold, like Apple did not invent private set intersection or threshold encryption. But, you know, there, there are such obvious reasons why this might be a bad idea. And those are, again, going back to the, the Jonathan Mayer Usenix paper, um, you know, he describes a similar system and he describes the reasons why it's a bad idea. And here it is with that coming out mere days after Apple's idea came out. So, you know, I agree that they have a lot of smart people at Apple who were working hard on, on implementing this, but they didn't invent sliced bread here. Um, you know, th- these have been some some known systems and known things that you could do for a while here. And, you know, I, I do agree with you, though, that there has been year after year of this nerd harder thing. And honestly, like Silicon Valley has kind of brought that upon themselves to some degree. When you're out there trying to make your share price go up as a publicly traded company and sell units as a publicly traded company, or when you're trying to raise, you know, your Series A or B or C around funding as a private company that's a startup, of course you have an incentive to say, we are the wizard geniuses, Uh, look at our wizardry. So then, you know, your bluff gets called when it's like, if you're such wizards, come up with a way of of solving this problem. You know, the, the... government's line has been, look, we were able to put a man on the moon. And, you know, Matt Blaze's response, another cryptographer has been, that doesn't mean it's a good idea to put a man on the sun. But, you know, just just to push back on the idea that this is a brand new breakthrough design. But Mayak, maybe you can tell me whether that is correct or not. I agree. The components of this system are all things that have been known before. Probably the newest part is also the least relevant to any sort of policy debate part, which is that obfuscation piece that I mentioned at the end, which uses this brand new thing called detectable hash functions. It really doesn't matter what it is. It's pretty cool to people like me, but but fortunately, it's not the main part that matters here. I think in terms of the sort of broader question of, of going dark and does this resolve or change much, I think from a technological standpoint, no, uh, for the reasons Rihanna stated. And there's there's a big, big difference between 
here's a valid, like here's here's a specific uh, scientific problem. Can you search for CSAM on uh, photos uploaded to iCloud? It's a very well-defined problem, and it's a problem where you know exactly what you're looking for, and you knew what you were looking for before you started searching, right? You have the NCMEC has the set of images before you start doing scanning, whether server-side or client-side. It's a very scoped and well, well-defined problem uh, versus, you know, when there are these uh, conversations about the going dark debate, I don't even know what law enforcement is asking for. They just want the ability to do anything all the time, and they will figure out at some point what they want to be looking for on which devices, and the tech has to be able to sort of you know, have the clairvoyance to figure out what police might do in the future and to prepare for that possibility. That, like, that's not the way technologically that anything works to say nothing about the giant policy leap that it's. Let me try to ask the question a different way. So I, I take both of your points that, that, that first, Apple may not have in fact solved this problem in the sense that this may not be a good idea. And even if this turns out to be an okay idea, and this is tolerable from a security and privacy perspective, it doesn't mean that Apple can solve the other problems that law enforcement wants it to solve because the going dark problem is not actually one technological problem. It's many only sort of related technological problems. And what works for one of those problems may not work for another one of those problems. But in terms of the kind of the, the war of ideas around this, doesn't this make your lives harder, right? So, so the, you know, the relationship between the civil society that that Rihanna is part of, the academic community that Mayank is part of, industry that Apple is part of, and the government that you know the FBI is is part of. That has always been a very complicated relationship. And and in the last ten years or so, the civil society and the academic research community has tended to be allied with big companies like Apple in all pushing back against demands from the government to you know quote unquote do something about the going dark uh, issue. And and presumably the fact that the really smart people at Apple were saying, we can't do this, made it easier for a Rihanna or a Mayank to point to that and say, no, look, they, they can't do this, so please stop asking. Now, doesn't it make your life much harder now that Apple has done this thing to say, and there's consensus, not just among us academics or us civil society people, um, but among the actual industry folks that you would need to build you the magic system that this can't be done, because Apple has just admitted that at least for a you know a, a non-trivial part of the problem, it can be done at least according to Apple. I mean, so let me ask you, Rihanna. You know, do, do you think this makes your life that much harder as you go forth and try to continue your 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 fight against any attempts to to weaken, uh, as you understand it, in, encryption? Absolutely. And first, let me push back on your formulation. It's not that Apple or anybody else was saying this can't be done. It's that we are saying this can't be done safely or this can't be done securely. And Mayank has been speaking to the concerns and the doubts about whether this is actually as secure as Apple is asking us to think that it is. And I've pointed out some of the concerns around why this is not something that can be done uh, without a blast radius that affects anybody from, uh, you know, closeted queer kids in Iowa up through, uh, you know, human rights and uh, vulnerable populations around the world. So, you know, it's, it's not about like the technology, it's kind of about the applications of the technology. Every technical choice is also a policy choice. And so, yes, this does make my job harder in as much as Apple has made this decision. And immediately we have seen uh, government officials, for example, in the UK saying, 
great, now it's Facebook's turn, now it's Google's turn, everybody else should be doing the same thing. And you know, this is despite the fact that these dangers were already well understood and that the risks were well understood um, and that we have not been quiet about re-raising those concerns now that Apple has dropped this into the laps, not only of their users, but of every other company out there and all of those companies' users and you know, all eyes have, have been you know, deflected away. The thing that I think Apple might be thinking is that this is going to get the government off their backs. Look, we gave you what you want. Now, like, this is the thing that you keep hammering on us about. Now we've done it, go away. It's not. Now it's going to be, they're all going to be wanting one. And it's not, as I said, going to be limited to CSAM. So I don't think Apple has succeeded in deflecting attention away, even though there is also now attention being paid to the Facebooks and the Googles and the signals of the world. Uh, it's going to be paid on, on Apple too. And the demand is going to be to do more and more and more. You can't give an inch without a mile being snatched away. Mayank, let me ask you a version of, of the question I asked Rihanna, and, and let me do it by reference to um, something that Charles Wright, who is a security researcher at Portland State University and someone that we've both collaborated with, uh, something that he wrote about on, on Twitter recently um, in the wake of this news. And he's been someone who's been doing research on the you know, how you do, you know, whether you can do scanning of encrypted information in a way that's still safe and privacy preserving. And he wrote a, a you know, thread in which he expressed a lot of his frustration about how, in his view, the security research community has not been willing over the past several years to think about ways to develop these kind of privacy protective content scanning systems. And that the result of, of kind of the blanket refusal to do that has, me has meant that when inevitably someone caved to the pressure and created such a system like Apple just did, they did so without the benefit of years and years of research from the, the community into how to do this well. And that what you get is this system, which, which Charles has you know, his own security objections to. And, and I'm curious, do you think that this is a kind of a fair criticism of, of the security research community? And, and if so, you know, will this action by Apple because it opens the door to many more such such attempts um, by Apple or, or other companies or other governments to create scanning of encrypted data, you know, do you think this will be a wake up call for the research community to actually start taking this issue more seriously and actually be willing to do a lot more research into this? Yes, I think uh, Charles's criticism is is valid, and yes, I I think or hope that there would be. Uh, some changes in the way that academic cryptography and, and cybersecurity communities uh, look at these problems, which is to say that there's sort of questions about what subset of the going dark or whatever you want to call it uh, problems are technologically possible versus what subset are actually good ideas for society. And I worry that the cryptographers tend to conflate the two. And like we've been discussing this whole uh, time, you know, the tech that Apple is talking about is not new. And so there could have been discussion over the past decades. I mean, the technology of private set intersection goes back to the 1980s. There could have been discussions uh, within the, the tech community about where should or should not this technology be used. And there aren't, partially because maybe just structurally the way that uh, computer science research is valued. It's based on novelty of math or, or algorithmic or engineering ideas. It's not really based as much on 
you know, here's a policy position paper on how my new tech should be used. That's not something that computer science venues publish. It is something that like lawyers and, and political scientists and economists and whatever publish, but it's not something that we do. And it's partially, I don't know, just a view that, uh, you know, if nobody thinks or looks at how to solve a problem technologically, maybe the requests from government will just go away. And I don't like that way of looking at it. I much prefer the way that, for example, Jonathan Mayer does, which Rihanna has mentioned earlier, that, you know, let's understand the fundamental limits of perceptual hashing or the way that Matt Green and and uh, Gabe Kapchuk and Giels Van Leer did uh, in a Eurocrypt paper earlier this year, where they looked at, you know, what subsets of the going dark problem are actually easier or harder from a technical point of view. Not from a, you know, sort of, again, we should give ourselves the freedom as a computer science group to understand what are the technological limits, even as we also, when we put our, you know, human rights, civil privacy uh, hats on, argue for whether they should or should not be done. But we shouldn't use that to sort of leave a complete vacuum into which, you know, one day some company decides to drop this product and say, okay, we've solved all these problems, because then we've abdicated also our role in evaluating it. So like, I have to push back on that. And I have to push back on Charles's snit that he threw on Twitter. Like you've just mentioned at least two papers that do exist that Charles is pretending like don't. Like you guys published this paper that he was talking about in Euro S&P. You published it at Usenik's Enigma. I saw you present it at Crypto 2018 in Santa Barbara. At that same workshop, I saw Stefan Savage present his work that was also trying to address a part of the going dark problem, which he later published at ACM CCS. There's been a lot of other academic publications on different ways to try and do uh, accountability within different systems. And like, it's out there. And the fact that, you know, maybe a lot of computer scientists have decided to work on problems besides solving law enforcement's problems for it is not evidence of the fact that like no everybody's decided that this is just a verboten research area in addition to which like if you are required by reviewers to think about and say something about the potential impacts societally or policy wise of the thing that you're proposing you know that's i think a valid amount of pushback i think there's a lot of debate to be had over you know the role of, of ethics or legality in terms of what systems get proposed in academic works but you know frankly charles sounded like josh hawley whining about getting his book deal pulled the fact that you didn't get to publish something in your venue of choice in your particular conference proceedings of choice does not mean that you can't get your ideas out there and publish them the keys under doormat's paper from the mit team was published months before they published it in the various outlets that they published it in and that is extremely highly regarded and still kind of a classic in this field of describing what the issue is and what the potential implications are it's not as though it was impossible to put your work out there if you had some idea that you thought would be you know no-node by the you know naysayers within the academic community who didn't want you to do your work on how to help out law enforcement and achieve these goals that they have that are entirely legitimate goals but like the way that he went about saying this was weirdly victim blamey it's as though you know like if a, a state government had said we're looking for the you know the most humane way to put a, a prisoner to death 
can you help us out? We're putting out a CFP. And some people say, here's a proposal for a particular drug cocktail that we think would be not painful and would be like quick and, and, and you know, relatively humane. And a group of doctors say it violates the Hippocratic Oath to assist in any way with executions. Then when you know, the state comes out and says, all right, we're going to do the firing squad, it's really unfair for the people who propose the drug cocktail to turn around and say, look what you made them do by saying that it violates the Hippocratic Oath. It's just not true. Yeah, just in quick response. Uh, so I don't think Charles was saying, you know, he was sad about, you know, which venue our paper got published or that uh, everybody in the, you know, cybersecurity community should like rush and want to publish papers in this area. I think the question is more, you know, how open is the community to thinking about this problem? You know, at the workshop, that Rihanna, you that were describing earlier that we both attended uh, uh, associated with crypto 2018, there was a good contingency of people continuously asking questions every 15 or 30 minutes, like, why are we here? Why does this you know, venue even exist to be thinking about these kinds of questions? And that's the part that I'm referring to, at least that I believe Charles was saying as well, that if we have an attitude of, if we all stick our head in the sand, this will go away, that's not necessarily as productive as let's have the discussion of both what is technologically possible and not, and also what is good for society or not. So I think the point was just to say, let's have more dialogue about this within the computer science tech community, not less. So obviously this is going to be an issue we're going to be talking about for, for a long, long time. Um, so I think we should we should end it there for now. Rihanna, Mayank, thank you very much uh, for joining me and really appreciate your thinking and writing and work on this issue. Thanks so much. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. If you've liked what you've heard, please take a moment to rate the podcast or let someone know so they can enjoy it as well. This podcast is produced by Jen Patya Howell. Hamza Shitu of Goat Rodeo is our audio engineer, and Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.